Metta practice is traditionally taught in relationship to several other practices that we might uh, collectively call heart practices. As Larry was suggesting, that uh, distinction between heart and mind isn't made in the uh, Buddhist Asian languages, so it's really a distinction for us. <laughs> it's our name, but we, we have these fam- this family of practices that include metta, her loving kindness, compassion, uh, joy, particularly joy and the joy of others, uh, gratitude, equanimity, and we'll also be bringing in, in this retreat, uh, forgiveness. So we have there a total of six heart practices that are, in a way, uh, sometimes we might call them a family of practices. Uh, we often uh, we often speak and identify the ways that, in some sense, it's the same heart with somewhat uh, different situations. That metta is this general way of meeting experience that we're cultivating to meeting experience our own and that of others with uh, kindness. When that good heart meets something difficult where there's pain or suffering, it becomes compassion. It's the same heart, but it looks a little different. When it meets happiness or joy of one's own or of others, or I, I like to say also when it meets beauty, it becomes joy. Same heart. Very, um, it's a very uh, open heart. It can be and reflect different circumstances. And we sometimes say that the heart that holds everything, that can be with all of what arises, is equanimity. And so metta is in that family. The, the four Metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity are collectively called the Brahma-vihara, or literal translation would be the divine abodes, or vihara is actually the word that's used for house. And so it means you know, it's like the divine home or the divine abodes. It's, and when we, um, in, in the tradition, when we are doing metta and these other practices, we are actually living as the gods and goddesses live. So, I hope that feels good. <laughs> I, find that, I find that very encouraging. <laughs> Traditionally, equanimity is taught in the uh, Theravada tradition last. And uh, partly due to timing issues, we're teaching it right after metta. <laughs> but I can say that in the Tibetan tradition, it's actually taught first. It's actually taught before metta. And when I've sometimes done periods of practice of these four abodes, I've started with equanimity. And one of the reasons that the Tibetans like to start with equanimity is that it especially brings in the wisdom dimension and gives a clear perspective. So a few words further 
about equanimity, and then we'll practice together. And we'll be offering in successive days uh, further practices. Tomorrow, uh, Sylvia Borstein will be teaching at this time and teaching on compassion. We'll also, and she'll also teach uh, two days later on joy. Okay, so we will cover all four. <laughs> so... Uh, Some liken the quality of equanimity to the quality of presence of a wise grandmother. Basically, someone who's seen everything (laughs) and doesn't get phased or knocked around by whatever happens and still is responsive and still is very, very directly responsive. And that's, this is the quality of equanimity, balanced and yet responsive. The literal meaning of equanimity, and some of you are actually living in equanimity, that is, in upeka. And, Maybe we should do like a little test after the end of the retreat and see if people in the different dorms have the different qualities following the names of the dorms. So you know the names of the dorms are essentially metta and karuna, or compassion, mudita, or joy, and upeka, or equanimity. And literally, upeka means balance. And it's the capacity to be balanced with whatever comes up, meaning uh, non-reactive. In our mindfulness and insight practice, that is especially a fruit of having hung out over time with virtually all the possible emotional and mental states that can arise, and particularly the challenging ones, and having been with anger and fear and Uh, sadness and um, grief and so forth and learned about them and grown to be more balanced with the difficult states. So to a large extent, equanimity is a fruit of practice. It's a natural fruit of practice because we learn when we can be with what's uh, difficult. And yet we also have... uh, a formal practice that can, as it were, accelerate the development of equanimity. So equanimity is partly about uh, balance. It's, uh, there's a certain kind of evenness with equanimity where we can be with uh, what comes up and not particularly want one thing and not want another. There's a way that we can simply be with what's there One of my favorite expressions of this comes in a a Japanese uh, haiku by the famous haiku writer uh, Basho. So as you know, haikus are only 17 syllables in Japanese, so this is brief, so listen carefully. (laughs) (laughs) So see if you agree that this is an equanimity haiku. Fleas 
lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. The end. <laughs> okay. So I interpret that as equanimity haiku because there's not commentary, right? He's not saying, oh, why did I leave the horse there next time? You know, didn't get agitated. Okay? So, so there's, that, there's that quality of um, balance. There's a quality of evenness. A certain kind of um, unshakability, ultimately. You know, that when there's equanimity... Uh, there's increasing ability to be with what's there and not be shaken. And we find this in, you know, I mean, if you, you know, considering it's Dr. King's birthday, you can read his uh, biography and you'll find many instances where that was the case, where, where things were happening that were pretty intense and he wasn't, um, he wasn't shaken. You know, and, and you can find that in uh, people who have, uh, over a long haul, dedicated themselves to practice in different forms. It's partly the practice gives us that solidity, you know, that uh, um, unshakability. There's a, there's a text where the Buddha says to his son, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth meaning that is, in a sense, unshakable, can, not, can still keep going and not be affected. So this is a very powerful state, this equanimity. You know? And it also um, can have qualities also of, um, of joy and compassion. One of the teachings that's quite beautiful and subtle about these four divine abodes is that in their mature forms, they interpenetrate each other. And in fact, there are strong tendencies if we don't integrate the four for each of them to become distorted. As we were, as Larry was talking last night about the, the what he calls the near opposites, sometimes also called the near enemies of uh, metta, you know, being a kind of attached caring or attached uh, loving and the, the far far opposite being the uh, being hatred and for um, for equanimity the near opposite is indifference in other words it can look like equanimity you know I'm really balanced that's because I'm withdrawn and I don't care <laughs> not that people would say that you know if they're indifferent but you know that um, indifference can look like equanimity or there are a lot of other things that can look like equanimity Complacency can look like equanimity. Resignation can look like equanimity. But there's some lack of the caring because ultimately equanimity is also responsive. It has the qualities of the other three integrated in them, of the um, loving kindness, of the compassion, and even the joy. That uh, mature equanimity has all of those. And it's something that is a reason to actually uh, keep... uh, um, practicing at the same time several of these Brahma-vihara because they actually inform each other. Equanimity also has the aspect of understanding. This is where the wisdom factor comes in. 
that there can be some sense with equanimity. You know, some people would call it the long view or the wide view of causes and conditions and some understanding of, oh, this is, this is, these are the causes and conditions that made this possible. Ah, oh, I see that. Right? So there can be some understanding. You know, we can see, oh, this is what's led to this. So there's a sense of the causal chain. And that's an important aspect of equanimity. It brings in the wisdom factor. And again, I've seen that in, in um, a lot of wise people have very long views. I remember meeting Dr. Aryaratni from Sri Lanka. He was one of the great teachers there. And he's been um, instrumental in ending the civil war. And and uh, in developing a new um, kind of a plan to heal, his plan was a 500-year plan. He said it took 500 years of colonialism and other things to cause the problems. It will take 500 years to fully heal. And he had an outline, you know, it was like you know, 20 years just to make sure things are peaceful, 40 years for people to get to know the other side, <laughs> you know, 60 years to... F- develop new institutions, etc. So it's quite, quite beautiful, but a very long view. That's part of equanimity. Seeing the larger patterns and being realistic, in a sense. We practice equanimity much like we practice metta. We say phrases silently, and we may use very similar techniques such as having uh, an image of the person, ourselves or others, you know, letting there be an echo or resonance at the end after we say each phrase. And so it's done in a quite uh, similar way. The, the sequence is a little bit different. We typically start with a neutral person and then go through a little bit different sequence um, usually doing self near the end. For today, I'll just take us through three categories. I'll take us through neutral person, uh, I think benefactor, and self. We'll do those just briefly today. The phrases are are listed in the handout, and there are quite a number of them. They're essentially wisdom phrases. Uh, I'll just say the ones that I use are Uh, No matter what I wish for, things are as they are. (laughs) And my experience of equanimity practice is often, if I'm reflecting on something for myself, I'll say, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. And then my mind goes to something that uh, is as I don't want it to be. (laughs) I go, I sort of go, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. And I say it again. (laughs) And in that process of sitting with what I don't want, something happens, much like in the meta practice. Sitting with that over time, something gets um, explored and, and, and worked with. The traditional phrase is, you are the heir or owner of your own karma or your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depend on your actions, not so much on my wishes for you. Uh, We could give an hour-long talk on karma, which will not happen. 
But just to say a word on how, if you choose to use this, how, it, how I interpret this, when it says, your happiness and unhappiness depend on your actions, not so much on my wishes for you, it, uh, it means on your actions in the present moment. It doesn't mean you've made your bed, now you have to lie in it. <laughs> okay? It's an important point, because karma is often interpreted like that. I think misunderstood. But it really is about... Basically, your happiness depends on your response in the present moment to whatever is going on. Okay. And it's based, uh, that statement is basically saying, I can wish well for you, but you also have your own choices. You also have your own responses. And that's going to determine your happiness to a large extent. So and I think uh, in that sense, commonsensical. It's saying, no matter what I wish for you, you have your own life, your own momentum, and so forth. And so other phrases, and we just choose one of these that seems to work. All beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a lawful nature. I will care for you, but cannot keep you from suffering, which is really bringing in the meta flavor some and connecting it with equanimity. I have a Heather's phrase uh, is the one at the end. I think I'm, it's okay to say that. I have my path, you have your path, and I care about you. It's a very, very nice one. Uh, so again, it integrates the sense of the equanimity, but also brings in the caring. And some of you may want to uh, find one that has that expression. And again, as you explore this, if there's a, a way... Uh, a wording that seems to work for you, you can, you can uh, modify something. But if you're new to this, I would recommend taking one of these on the sheet and just working with it. When we say something like, uh, uh, no matter what I wish for, things are as there are, we're referring to the different persons. So no matter what I wish for you, no matter what I wish for the neutral person, no matter what I wish for the benefactor, no matter what I wish for me, just so that's clear that we're focusing each of these statements on a particular person. Okay, so a little complex, but uh, let's do the practice now. We'll do this for just about uh, 15 or 20 minutes. And I'll take us, th- I'll take us through uh, three of the, of the categories for muses. And we haven't got to neutral person yet. Some of you know this from, other, from a past retreats or past practice. The, the neutral person is someone towards whom we uh, don't have much or any positive or negative charge. And it, it might be someone at home who is maybe in a service role, maybe the person who delivers mail or a clerk in the store, or someone at work that we don't really know particularly. Um, could also be someone at this retreat that, that uh, you feel fairly neutrally towards. So first come up with who that person might be just for the sake of this practice. And you can, you can, we'll get more guidance on that when we, when we get to the neutral person with metta. And then we would repeat the phrase, much like 
the repetition of the metta phrases in reference to the neutral person. And I'll have us all come back in about four or five minutes and have a switch to the benefactor and then four or five minutes later to the to self. So we'll do those three categories now um, as we as we sit quietly. And it's fine to have the fr- the sheet right in front of you.
Now shifting to equanimity practice in relationship to the benefactor.
Now shifting to equanimity practice in relation to oneself.
So a few um, further comments, and then we'll have a, a few minutes if there are any questions about the equanimity practice. Um, first, we are recording the 4 p.m. sessions. And so this and the further uh, sessions on the other heart practices will be available after the retreat. Um, If you want to do this practice further, you could do it for a short period at the end of a sitting. You could start the sitting with it. You could devote a whole session to this practice. Um, If you want to make it your own, you might, you know, you could do it um, once or twice a day for 15 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes for the rest of the retreat. And by the end of the retreat, it will become more familiar to you if if it's new. Just one other word is that it can be uh, um, very helpful to have some period of metta go right before the equanimity practice. So if you're starting it, uh, which I guess isn't an issue here. (laughs) Okay. Any uh, questions about anything related to this practice? And I'll repeat the questions, please. Well, the, the, the meaning is related to the present moment, but like the metta phrases, these are more phrases we repeat and then we don't try particularly to go anywhere. We don't, we don't try to reflect on what's there in the present. We just let it resonate as it, as it may. Uh, but it, yeah, it's referring to, um, but it, it, I think it could, it could partly uh, have the meaning of things have been this way. You know? So I think it could have a, wide, a wider meaning than the immediate moment. It's really to see what comes up. Yeah. Uh, please. Yeah. But if you're directing it to another person, do you say, may you accept things? Or may I accept things? That's a good question. So the question is about uh, uh, who is developing equanimity. (laughs) 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 And it's I. (laughs) So I am developing equanimity in relation to the other. I think if we said, may you develop equanimity, it would probably be more of a metaphrase. But that's a great, great question because it, it wasn't clear. Yeah. Um, in the back, please. Um, I, I found myself having difficulty choosing a neutral person or benefactor because I realize I'm only really wishing for tranquility, for equanimity in the presence of a challenge in the other person's life. Mm-hmm. Well, equanimity is quite important for good things. Uh, you know, the, the basic Buddhist psychology is that we tend to become reactive both by 
kind of compulsively pushing things away, but also by grasping, right? That we can be out of balance and uh, engage in activities which lead to suffering with good things as well. You know, with, with, in, when we re- reflect on it, it's, 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 it's more obvious, right? When we actually would reflect on that and see people, uh, whatever, wanting to grab hold of a relationship or wanting to grab hold of make this good experience last forever, right? We don't need to go further than the meditation retreat, right? A good, a good meditation grasped on can be a source of suffering, a so-called good meditation, right? So, so great, great question, though. Does that, does that help get at it? So it's actually we want equanimity in relation to everything. Yeah. Maybe uh, last one, please. Well, it, it may be a little bit like the uh, metta practice if there for are certain ways that uh, a block or a, a really a, a lot of difficulty comes up for self. We may cultivate the equanimity practice where it, where it uh, works a little more easily. Um, much like the metta practice guidance, you know, and so um, you may want to come back to uh, self later. You see, in the traditional sequence, self actually comes after difficult person. <laughs> so I think I think I would uh, I would experiment some with it. But if you're just doing it with yourself, and it's no, the other the other strategy would just be to stay with that, stay with that as a practice, but do it for a shorter time. Okay, so again, I'm going to have to finish now uh, for reasons of time, partly because I have a group in like uh, one minute. <laughs> so we can, can turn off the recording.